This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Beaton Wells exploring the challenges in competition policy, law, and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer, or competitor. In this episode, Karon speaks with Facebook's Associate General Counsel, specialising in competition, Samantha Knox. We certainly invest a lot of time and energy in trying to be valuable partners to news publishers, but we are not an essential channel of news distribution. And I think that's best illustrated by considering when you wake up in the morning and you want to check the news, what's the first source that you turn to? Chances are it's not Facebook. Here's Karan Beaton-Wells. In our last episode, we heard from Dr. Catherine Kemp about the ACCC's preliminary findings and recommendations in its inquiry into digital platforms and their impact on the media and advertising sectors. This episode, we hear from Facebook's Associate General Counsel Competition, Samantha Knox. On the line from San Francisco, Sam joined me to talk over the ACCC's findings about relevant markets and market power and its proposals for changes to merger review and for new regulation. Of course, I don't need to tell you that these are issues at the forefront of many competition law minds around the world. But while the top tech execs are often in the media, it's fairly rare that we get to hear directly from those who represent them on the legal front line. In part for that reason, this episode is a bit longer than some of the others, but in part it also just reflects there's so much in this inquiry to talk about. So strap yourselves in. At the outset, in the report, the ACCC makes a general call on Facebook and Google to be more responsible and more accountable for their roles in and impact on society. So I asked Sam, how does this sit with Facebook's current approach to regulatory oversight of its affairs? We are very eager to be working with the ACCC, with other regulators around the globe to undertake initiatives that would protect consumers and also promote innovation and growth, particularly in the small business sector. So we are ready and willing to sit at the table and we understand that part of that process is absolutely educating regulators on how our products and services work and that it has to be a very cooperative process. And would you say there's been a shift in that attitude in the company in recent years or has that always been its stance? I think that in the last year, that has been something that has become very clear and we recognize the importance of participating in these regulatory endeavors. And you've heard Mark and Cheryl, top executives at the company, speaking about this really for the last year, if not longer. So it's something we're taking very seriously. Sam, this inquiry, it's focused particularly on the impact of digital platforms on the news and media sector. And... One of the premises of the many recommendations made is that the Australian commercial media sector, like many around the world, is facing essentially a sustainability crisis. Just in general terms, how much do you think digital platforms, or Facebook in particular, should be seen as responsible for the challenges facing the sector? 
The challenges facing the sector and some publishers in particular started long before Facebook and Google. These are really tied to the advent of the internet. Digitization of media has presented both challenges and opportunities, not just for news publishers, but for media content creators of all types. And if you look back in time to 2005, for example, more than a decade ago, Facebook was still two years away from making its first dollar on advertising. It was not yet even widely available in Australia. But as early as 2005, news publishers were talking about the challenges and opportunities presented by digital, discussing that with their shareholders in public-facing statements. So these challenges have been around for quite some time. And I think that the solutions go far beyond what any one company could bring to the table. Certainly from my observations, there's considerable variability in the way in which and success with which news organizations are responding to digital disruption. Tell me a bit about what Facebook is doing to support these organizations. I think one of the most important things that we can do is to be engaging with and partnering with uh, media publishers. And one concrete example of that, so through the Facebook Journalism Project, which is an initiative that was founded in early 2017, we began engaging in kind of regular series of dialogues with publishers. And what has grown out of that is a very productive collaboration where we hear from publishers, how could Facebook be more valuable to them? How can they best leverage Facebook services and products? And so we're hearing directly from the publishers what they need. And what we've learned through that process is that different publishers have different business models. And what we discovered is that the best way for Facebook to help publishers monetize is to kind of grow their relationships with readers. And so in many ways, it's less about referral traffic, you know, a single referral to a site, which of course publishers monetize through showing ads. That's worth a fraction of the penny. A lifetime subscriber is obviously a lot more valuable. So out of that dialogue, we've developed a number of products, including one that's in beta now. Instant Articles is a news format on Facebook. And through working with publishers, we have developed the ability for publishers to collect new subscribers through that product. So when a reader sees an instant article, the publisher has an opportunity to ask them if they'd like to become a subscriber. And then publishers keep 100% of the revenue from those subscriptions. So that's just one example of how I think partnering with publishers, we are really able to help them leverage Facebook in the way that makes the most sense to their particular business model. Sam, we've started talking about what comes at the end of the report, which is these broader public interest considerations. But let's go back to the beginning and in particular, the approach that the AACC has taken to the scope of its inquiry makes it clear at the outset that its principal focus is on Facebook and Google. Do you agree with that approach or do you think perhaps it's been a bit too narrow in its purview? Well, as we've discussed, Corona, I think the challenges that are facing the journalism sector and that are addressed in the terms of reference go far beyond what Facebook or Facebook and Google could bring to the table to solve it. So I do think it's overly narrow in that sense. I also think that it's interesting that the report does not make any findings or allegations of misuse of market power against Facebook whatsoever. And to me, there's somewhat of a disconnect there between the extent of some of the remedies that are proposed and that. Yes, it's certainly the case that the principal focus of the recommendations, albeit they are preliminary, 
is on new regulatory measures as distinct from changes to or just greater enforcement of the competition laws. We're going to come back and talk about some of the regulatory proposals, but just staying on the question of the focus that the ACCC has on Facebook and Google, it does emphasize a lot the similarity in the business models of these two companies. Do you think it's paid enough attention to the differences? To start, the focus on Facebook's business model is something I'd like to push back on a bit. We offer our services to consumers and to businesses for free. We're able to do that because we generate revenue from advertising. That business model is as old as time. It is the same business model that is used by newspapers, by other uh, news publishers, and by many other businesses. So the idea that that's not transparent or that there's somehow kind of a flaw in the business model itself is one that I would challenge. And then to address your question, I do think that in some places in the report, there seems to be a conflation or a combination of Facebook and Google. And I think there are important differences between the two companies. I think that you cannot kind of combine them, particularly for purposes of running a competition analysis. So in one instance, in particular in the report, the report appears to refer collectively to the share of Facebook and Google's share of the news referral services market, which was a bit perplexing. Yes, we're going to talk about that market, but I want to come back to something you said earlier. You said the services that Facebook provides its users are free. Does that imply you would reject the argument made by the ACCC and indeed many others that in fact they're not for free, that consumers pay with their data? We do reject that. The information that people share with Facebook through their use of the service and that they share with each other, that information is necessary to personalize the services and the products that we're offering. The idea that consumers are paying with their data in exchange to get a product is a false construct. Of course, that data enables you to provide certain services to advertisers And that takes us to the nature of the business model being a multi-sided one. The ACCC sets out at some length what you might regard as a fairly textbook-style explanation of the multi-sided platform business model, and in particular the need to understand the interdependencies between different sides of the platform. Just at the basic level of principle, Sam, has the ACCC got its understanding of that model right? Well, you're right, Karun, that the fact that we are a multi-sided platform is relevant to the analysis, and the preliminary report acknowledges that. What I didn't see much discussion of, if any, in the preliminary report is the effects of the recommendations on Australian consumers and Australian businesses. There's a lot of focus on the effect of the recommendations on publishers, but very little discussion of what impact those recommendations would have on Australian consumers and businesses. And on the flip side of that coin, there's little discussion of how the direct relationships that Facebook has with the people using our service and with the businesses using our tools and our advertising services, what role that plays. And to be a bit more specific about that, we have very strong incentives to make sure that we are offering 
valuable services that people want to use and that advertisers are seeing a good return on their investment. And some of the conclusions and findings that are reached in the report seem to ignore, or at least fail to take account of those strong incentives. The ACCC certainly did play up what are referred to as positive feedback loops in network effects where, um, of course, as you would know, the value realized by the users on one side of the platform increases with the number of users or customers on the other side. But do you think the ACCC gave sufficient weight to negative feedback loops where the inverse occurs and the platform becomes less attractive, less popular to one side where demand or use on the other side decreases? I think that's an important question, Karone. I didn't see much discussion of that in the report, but I can tell you that's something that we think about constantly. And we've seen this historically. If a service fails to continue to provide value and users no longer want to use the services, that kind of negative network effect, that downward spiral happens very quickly. What about multi-homing, Sam? Do you think the ACCC has given enough attention to its significance when it says that there's a propensity of a platform market to tip towards monopoly. That's something we hear quite frequently. I think that's an important question that needs to be discussed and considered. For every service that Facebook provides, there are at least three or four other competing apps or services out there that users can turn to. And when we're thinking about news in particular, The fact that publishers distribute their news through multiple channels and the fact that users are accessing news through multiple channels has important implications for the competition analysis here. And that's something that we need to be taken into account. Well, of course, when we're thinking about the options or channels available to consumers, we need to start talking about the relevant markets for the purposes of any antitrust analysis. The ACCC found is relevant to Facebook three markets, so let's talk a bit about each of those and explore whether Facebook indeed has substantial power in them, as found by the ACCC. Let's start with the market for social media. Facebook says that it is just one small part of how Australians connect with friends, family and the world around them. Does that suggest that in Facebook's view, There's a market for social connection as such? The way that we think about that here, Corone, is the two dimensions on which we are competing with other companies are for user attention and for advertising dollars. And so social connection, by that, if you were to include social networking, messaging, that's one part of both user attention and advertising dollars. But really, the market definition ought to be broader. We are competing for time and space on people's mobile devices in particular with a variety of different types of apps, apps that might look different, YouTube, TikTok, other video sharing apps, but apps that, again, are commanding shares of people's time and thus are where advertisers want to go to reach people's attention. Consistent with what you've just said, Sam, the submission by Facebook also makes the point that it competes for the interest and attention of people against many other ad-supported platforms. So would you include in the relevant market both online and offline ad-supported platforms? Absolutely. And here I think it's instructive to look at things from the advertiser's point of view. 
And what we have seen is that when advertisers are deciding where to allocate their marketing budgets, they are, first of all, spreading their spend across a variety of channels, and they will manage the spend to direct it to the channels that are providing them with the best return on their investments, the best ROI. And we compete fiercely with other digital platforms, but also with television in particular and print media. And that I think you can see on the face of the submissions in this inquiry. Well, in terms of power, if we just accept for the sake of discussion that there's a relevant market for social media as distinct from, say, a market for attention on ad-supported platforms, the ACCC does acknowledge that Facebook's got some competition from Snapchat and from LinkedIn and Twitter. Do you think it's underestimated the degree to which Facebook faces meaningful competition from those other more specialised rivals? I do think so. And even if we were, for the sake of argument, going to go with a social market definition, there are many social apps that are not included in that list of three or four companies that are identified in the report. So it's not clear to me why the ACCC believes, for example, that Snap and Twitter are not substitutes for apps like WeChat or YouTube or TikTok, but I do view that as overly narrow. I mean, the ACCC does say in the report that the average person now uses some eight different services to connect and communicate twice as many as five years ago. Do you happen to have at your fingertips data on the proportion of time that users would spend on those other services relative to the time spent on Facebook? I don't. I'm sorry. Okay, well, let's move from talking about existing competitors to the question of dynamic competition. The ACCC did rather fulsomely reject arguments about constraints imposed by potential new entrants, and no doubt Facebook will take issue with that. Tell me a bit about this from Facebook's perspective. I think today, more so than ever, particularly again, when you're talking about competing for user attention and advertising dollars, barriers to entry here are lower than ever. A new app can come on the scene and very quickly gain access to users and a strong following through technologies or platforms like the App Store and Google Play Store. That makes it easy for kind of any small business to launch the next big app. And then the fact that we've got Amazon Web Services, Google Cloud, all of these data hosting and then also data analysis services makes it really easy for apps to collect, store and analyze the data that they would need to compete in these spaces. And so for that reason, I think that businesses in this space are constantly keeping their eye on the next big trend, the next big app, and it would be very easy to be disrupted. I can't quibble with you, Sam, that uh, online services now being software-based can be set up and rolled out with minimal staff, capital investment, infrastructure, and of course the cloud is a big part of that. But while you can talk about the ease with which one can now start up online, surely that's not all that relevant if you're trying to compare the situation of a small startup, let's say a new dog photo sharing website, with a Facebook equivalent service? I don't know that I would agree with that, Karone. I think because of the ability to reach a global audience, 
in terms of getting access to users. And because neither user attention nor data are exclusive resources, as we've talked about, people use on average eight apps a day. They spread their time and attention across different surfaces. So multiple apps can gather the information that they would need to personalize content and advertisements. We can see this through history. For example, Snapchat, Pinterest, Pokemon Go, these are all apps that quickly gained in popularity and are now some of our most significant competitors. The ACCC did refer to the case of MySpace and it took the view that just because Facebook overtook MySpace doesn't now mean that we should regard Facebook's market power as fragile or transitory and it referred to the fact that at its peak MySpace had 100 million monthly active users whereas Facebook now is at 2 billion globally. Just as a question of scale, do you think it's relevant for the current mega platforms to be pointing to predecessors that were operating in quite a different era and a different environment to the one now? To address your question, Karon, the scale of our services does not provide us with a competitive advantage in the way that some have suggested. So two concrete points there. First, having more data in and of itself does not improve the accuracy of, for example, ad targeting. The academic research has shown this. There are a number of studies that show that increasing amounts of data do not enhance machine learning's ability to predict whether the pair of eyeballs looking at the ad is male or female. So volume of data doesn't in and of itself give us an advantage. With regard to number of users, that doesn't give us an advantage in terms of attractiveness to advertisers either, particularly today more so than ever. When an advertiser is looking to reach their audience, no advertiser wants to put an ad to all 2 billion people using Facebook around the world. They want to reach the people most likely to take the outcome that they're hoping for, that are most interested in their products or services. And the advances in technology in the digital ad sector makes it possible for advertisers to assemble in an audience across digital platforms and to also do things like cap the number of times that a user will see a given ad. So that frequency capping and the ability to kind of cobble together their own audience across competing companies makes the reach of any single particular platform less relevant. And in terms of the size of the platform, coming back to MySpace, I do think that provides some valuable context. So in 2007, if we look back, we would see a number of headlines talking about MySpace's monopoly and whether it could ever be unseated. So I think we have got to keep some historical perspective here. And in terms of the size of the audience reach, I would also add that Facebook's number of monthly active users in Australia is actually the same as News Corp Australia's monthly active audience, 16 million. Retaining that audience, of course, would be crucial to everything Facebook does. Facebook can't take its users for granted. And I've often heard uh, Facebook and other big tech platforms say that if they were to do something that might alienate or offend their users, that people would leave the platform and with them would go the advertisers and the media content providers. But I want to just test that proposition with you somewhat. I mean, if ever there was an event that might have had that effect, one would think it would be the Cambridge Analytica scandal. 
And of course, there was the delete Facebook campaign that happened after the scandal broke. And there's been growing adverse publicity about lack of privacy protection and the extent to which Facebook is tracking its users. Those factors might have contributed to the slide in Facebook's stock value, but are they really putting any dent in the user base or its growth trajectory? Can you give us any insight into that? Uh, No, I can't speak to that, Karan. All right, then, well, what about advantages of scope? The HCC made a big deal of this. Uh, It said that Facebook enjoys economies or advantages of scope because of its services across not just its core Facebook platform, but Instagram, Messenger, and WhatsApp. What's your response to that argument? That, I think, misunderstands the nature of the market today. The data that Facebook uses to personalize advertisements and other content is not unique, either in its richness or its depth. And when we're talking about data, I think it's important to be concrete here. So let's break this down into what types of data do we use to personalize this content? The first is data that people share with us through their use of the service. So their profile information, the ads that they interact with on the platform, the pages that they follow. And this is known in the industry as first-party data. This type of data is collected by a number of other ad platforms. So Twitter, Google, news media websites, where they can see what folks are reading and what types of content they're engaging with. So that first-party data that we have is not unique. And this is the perfect example of what I mean when I say that data is not exclusive. Second type of data that we use to personalize advertisements is data that is shared with us by advertisers and partners. And the key here is that this is data coming from the advertiser. And this type of data could include things like their customers' prior purchases, customer browsing behavior. And this type of data is used to, in particular, help personalize ads, like, for example, if there was something in your shopping cart that you haven't checked out yet with, then the advertiser can send that information through Pixel to Facebook, to Google, to Snap, to Twitter. And that can be used to perhaps offer you a discount and remind you that's something that you might like to buy. And advertisers have strong incentives to actually share that information widely so that the ads that they're running on the various platforms are as relevant as they could possibly be. So in neither of those categories is the data that Facebook has somehow unique or rare or different than what other players in the ad industry have. It seems really key to much of what you're saying, Sam, that We need to understand properly how advertisers see the value of the service that Facebook provides and assess the alternatives available to them. So let's move on and talk about the advertising market. The ACCC found that the relevant market in the case of Facebook was the market for display advertising, and it found Facebook to have substantial power in that market. So it's differentiated display advertising from other types of advertising like search, classified, offline, it doesn't regard any of those as close substitutes for online display advertising. Do you think the ACCC has properly understood the way in which this market is seen by advertisers? I think the distinction that's been drawn between search and display is an artificial one, and it's one that's outdated. 
it may harken back to the Google DoubleClick decision from 2008, in which the European Commission explored, but did not actually find separate markets for search and display advertising. And that decision um, and that discussion was based on an assumption that the banner ads of the day in 2008 were better suited to brand-related objectives, to kind of building brand awareness, than to actually driving conversions, which today, for example, sales, app downloads, in-store visits. But any distinctions that might once have existed are no longer relevant. Advertising on Facebook has come a long way since the banner ads of 2008 that the ACCC seems to have in mind. When an advertiser comes to us to place an advertisement, the first question that we ask them is, what's your objective? What is the goal of this ad? Do you want to build brand awareness? Do you want to drive app installs? And we've developed a number of innovative ad formats that are particularly suited and intended for driving conversions. And just for example, compare Facebook and Google. Both companies offer ad products and services targeted to advertising outcomes at every level of that marketing funnel. At the top of the funnel, building brand awareness. At the middle of the funnel, increasing consideration. And at the bottom of the funnel, driving conversion. And what this illustrates is that Facebook and Google are competing closely with each other at every level of the funnel. And I think ironically, it's actually the wide availability of data as well as the technological innovations that have driven that competition and the top of the funnel and the bottom of the funnel more closely together. So I take it from what you've just said that Facebook would take issue with at least the exclusion of search advertising from the relevant advertising market. And you would say display and search advertising are in fact close substitutes. If the market was to include both display and search advertising, what would Facebook's share of the market be? I no, I'm I I put you on the spot, you can't say. I yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know off off the top of my head. No, not to worry. Well maybe you can tell me this. Facebook does say that the vast majority of its advertisers spend only a relatively small portion of their budget on Facebook. Do you have a figure as to what that portion is in the context of Australia or in any other context? Yes, the majority of the businesses advertising on Facebook are small and medium-sized businesses. And in Australia, in 2017, more than 350,000 businesses advertising on Facebook spent less than $100 with us. And only about 150 spent more than a million. So that gives you a feel for the number of small and medium-sized businesses that we're serving and the proportions there. And do they have long-term commitments with Facebook or can they readily switch on a daily, monthly or yearly basis? We do not have long-term commitments for the advertisers. And in fact, one important point to note is that advertisers can actually edit or stop their campaigns in real time. Obviously, that's not something that can be done on radio or TV or print, but that holds us to a higher bar. If advertisers can see in real time how effective their campaigns are, and if they're not happy with the performance of their campaign on Facebook, they can cancel it mid-campaign. Okay, so Sam, in the advertising market in which Facebook would see itself as competing, who would the significant others be? Amazon, no doubt, would be one. 
Absolutely. We compete with Amazon for ad dollars. I think under the ACCC's definition, they would fall under specialized search, but the notion that Facebook is not competing with Google or with Amazon for ad dollars just doesn't hold water. What about the role of data brokers? What role do you see them as playing in this market? These are firms, as I understand it, that collect data and then aggregate it and resell it to advertisers, and they often bundle it uh, with data from offline sources as well as demographic data. I'm thinking of firms like Experian and Oracle. It is a relevant point to bring up because that is a source of data that other advertisers use to personalize their advertisements. And that's actually a third category of data in addition to what we've talked about, this third-party data from data brokers. And the sources of this data, many different sources, so from banks on mortgage information, media companies, variety of different first-party data that is sold and aggregated by these data brokers and then used to create targetable audience segments that advertisers can leverage to target their ads. And so while we don't compete directly with these data sellers, these data sellers bring more competition to the digital ad landscape and are yet another alternative for advertisers to look to when they are looking to target their advertisements. Coming back to the question of switching that I referred to before, tell us a bit about the types of technologies available to advertisers nowadays that enable them to track the performance of their advertising dollars and make decisions about switching so they can secure the largest return on their investment. Sure. The advertising industry overall is more measurable than ever. And I think there are a few key examples to point out here. One is a product known as cross-channel attribution. So products like Nielsen digital ad ratings measurements will allow advertisers to compare the results of their campaigns across various digital platforms like Google, Facebook, Twitter, as well as the performance of their ad campaigns on TV. Another example of these measurement products that advertisers can leverage are multi-touch attribution products. And these will help advertisers figure out for an advertising campaign that has run on a number of different platforms, let's say multiple digital platforms, a print advertisement and a TV advertisement, what portion of the ultimate sale at the end of the funnel should be attributed to each ad platform along the way. So both of those measurement products are specific examples of both advertiser multi-homing and this precise measurability across channels. And then more generally, the existence of real-time dashboards that allow advertisers to measure the campaign's performance in real time give them a lot of visibility and insight into the effectiveness of the different channels. Mm, certainly such technologies are highly relevant in any analysis to switching costs for advertisers and so relevant to analyses of platform power in the ad market. Let's now talk about the third market that the ACCC identified, not just relevant to Facebook but to Google, the market for news media referral services. The ACCC refers to this concept of the supply of news media referral services as quite functionally distinct from the supply of news distribution or dissemination services. And 
it did that because it focused on the way in which Facebook and Google enable users to be directed or referred specifically to a media organization's website, and then the organization can monetize that traffic through subscriptions or ads. Do you agree there is such a market? I haven't seen one defined in that way anywhere else. Nor have I. One of the fundamental principles of antitrust law is that the relevant market has to include all acceptable substitutes. And so here, that has to be all the channels through which consumers access news. And I'd argue that this needs to include both online and offline channels. But if you were to go with a narrower market definition and limit this just to sources of digital traffic, if you look at the data that the ACCC has used and the market shares that they have put forward, they're looking at direct visits on desktop to news websites and also traffic referred from Google and Facebook. And that is under-inclusive. It it excludes a number of important sources of digital traffic. Specifically, if I'm understanding this correctly, it excludes all mobile traffic. And that's a big exclusion because mobile traffic, the amount of time that we spend on our mobile devices, the amount of news that we consume on those, that's a fast-growing source of referral traffic for news publishers. And in fact, mobile direct traffic, so that is going onto my mobile phone, and going into a browser, typing in the website address of a publisher on mobile or going to the publisher's app, that direct-to-publisher traffic on mobile exceeded all traffic referred by Facebook on both desktop and through the Facebook app last year for the first time. So I take it from what you've said that Facebook would seriously contest the ACCC's characterization of it as an unavoidable business partner for news organizations as you say, taking into account the full range of channels through which users can be referred to those organizations. You'd say Facebook is just one and not a significant one. That's right. We certainly invest a lot of time and energy in trying to be valuable partners to news publishers, but we are not an essential channel of news distribution. And I think that's best illustrated by considering when you wake up in the morning and you want to check the news, what's the first source that you turn to? Chances are it's not Facebook. It's probably television or perhaps your favorite newspaper's app or website. But Facebook is not an essential, nor is it the only channel for distributing or accessing news. And what percentage of the Facebook news feed... It's misleading or confusing to call it that in the context of this discussion, perhaps. But what percentage of that feed is news content? On average, news makes up about 4% of news feed. But it is important to note that that varies from individual to individual because the content that you see in your news feed is highly tailored to each person using Facebook. Sam, let's talk now a bit about the recommendations made by the ACCC. Those that go to competition law, as distinct from new regulation, they relate to merger review and, in particular, the ACCC's perspective that there needs to be greater scrutiny of what it calls strategic acquisitions. Is proposing that Facebook and Google voluntarily notify it of any proposed merger or acquisition, and I should explain for the benefit of our non-Australian listeners 
that we don't have a compulsory notification regime in Australia. So we don't have set thresholds that would trigger a requirement to notify. Sam, what's Facebook's view on this proposal that it be singled out for voluntarily notifying any acquisition to the ACCC? I found that recommendation surprising. As far as I'm aware, there aren't any competition authorities in other jurisdictions that have industry-specific merger review rules, let alone company-specific ones. And it's important to ask here what the aim of this recommendation is. Is the aim to block all future acquisitions by Facebook? And if that's true, I'd ask whether the ACCC has consulted with the venture capital community and the startup community on this. Large tech companies play an important role in the startup ecosystem by pumping liquidity back into that ecosystem. There are four times as many acquisitions as there are IPOs. And if we cut off an important source of that capital from Facebook, I think there would be serious implications for innovation. So you ask, perhaps rhetorically, what the ACCC's aim was with this proposal. And um, might I suggest that reading between the lines or perhaps reading the lines directly, its concern is that um, while Google or Facebook might voluntarily notify the acquisition of a competitively significant rival, it may not notify of a proposed or actual acquisition of a much smaller entity that might in the long run turn out to be significant. And of course, you'd be aware there's a general concern across the competition authority community about tech giants taking out promising yet nascent rivals. I mean, do you think there's an issue generally with the thresholds used for merger review and perhaps they need to be lowered as has occurred in Germany and Austria? I have heard and seen our acquisition of Instagram and other acquisitions by tech companies cited as examples of under-enforcement and a need for changing thresholds and perhaps standards, as you say, Caron. But these arguments assume really on the basis of nothing but selective hindsight and speculation that the companies that were acquired, and let's go back to Instagram here as a specific example, would have grown organically to become competitors to Facebook today. And when you kind of look back in time to Instagram as it was in 2012 when we acquired it, it had less than a dozen employees. It was operating out of a garage and it was struggling to keep the site up and meet growing user demand. At the time, there were at least 10 other photo apps that were very similar to Instagram, some bigger than Instagram. And so I think it's problematic to assume that these companies would have taken the path that they have taken. With regard to Instagram specifically, we have invested a significant amount of resources and expertise in making Instagram what it is today. And I think that Instagram's success actually shows that that acquisition was a pro-competitive one, one that benefited consumers as well as businesses that advertise with us. But there's no doubt that a company like Facebook would monitor potential competitor activity so as to identify emerging competitive threats. I mean, that's what any company would do. Given that, do you think there's any case for saying that a competition authority should be legitimately concerned about the acquisition of potential competitors? Or 
uh, do you think that the difficulties posed by the counterfactual to which you've just alluded uh, would make those concerns essentially speculative? So there are three points I want to make here. So first is that, yes, we absolutely monitor competition in the markets and we are very much concerned about are we offering the best products and services to our users? That is exactly what you would want to see. That's competition on the merits. What we think about when we acquire companies is the strategic value, how that will improve services for our advertisers, improve services for our consumers. So I absolutely reject this suggestion that we're hearing from some corners that our prior acquisitions were motivated by a desire to take out a competitor. That's just not true. But with regard to whether or not regulators should consider harm to potential competition as a factor in merger review, yes, and they already do. The existing rules, the existing tools in the toolbox allow for that. And I do think that if a regulator is concerned that the motive of an acquisition is to remove a competitive threat and that that harms competition, that's a problem. And they should look at that. Sam, we mentioned at the outset that the primary focus of the recommendations in this preliminary report is on regulation. Um, So let's talk a bit about that. Specifically, there's a proposal of a new regulatory authority with powers and the remit to monitor and scrutinize Facebook and Google practices. First, with respect to how advertising is ranked and displayed on their platforms. And secondly, the ranking and display of news content. To me, this seems mostly about just increasing transparency in the market so that advertisers and news content creators can assess the value of the services on offer to them and perhaps even to be able to better negotiate the terms and conditions on which they use those services. From Facebook's perspective, tell us, do you think these markets are lacking in transparency? So let me unpack that a bit, Karone. First, there was a lot in that. (laughs) There was, yeah. (laughs) First, it's not clear to me that those two proposals are all about transparency. We are absolutely committed to making sure that both people using our services and advertisers and regulators understand how we use algorithms and machine learning to personalize the content that we show. And I hear from the submissions that at least some feel like we need to do a better job of providing that transparency. And we are absolutely glad to discuss ways that we can do that. And we're eager to have that feedback. So transparency is a point that we can agree on. I think that's good. And if there are ways that we can improve on that, we're eager to do that. Sam, have I understood you correctly that Facebook does actually share the algorithm it uses for its news feed with advertisers and news businesses? No. And I think this is an important distinction, Crone, between transparency and disclosing source code, which I don't think would be helpful or really advances the ball here in terms of people understanding our services. So in terms of newsfeed ranking, let's start with newsfeed. It's not one algorithm. It is machine learning. Um, it incorporates a number of signals And we use those signals to make predictions about what content we think people would most like to see and would find most interesting in their news feeds. And we believe that people and not regulators should decide what's in their news feed. 
unlike a magazine that you buy or a news app or a website that shows the same thing to everyone, the content that appears in each person's newsfeed is specifically tailored to them. And that is shaped by that machine learning that we just talked about. It's also shaped by the people that you choose to connect to and the choices that you make on Facebook to personalize that content. So to take a few specific examples, you can see content from a particular person first in your newsfeed. You can choose to see newsfeed in chronological order if you would prefer that. And so I think the proposal here, the preliminary recommendation for direct regulation of the algorithm raises more questions than it does answers in my mind. Would the algorithm regulator be deciding which publishers Australians should see in their newsfeed, that they ought to see a higher percentage of news in their newsfeed than that average 4% that we talked about? If a particular publisher sees a decline in referral traffic from Facebook one month, will they complain to the algorithm regulator and would the regulator then direct Facebook to increase distribution of that publisher's content? I ask these questions because I think it underscores an important point. The point of Newsfeed is to connect people to the other people that they want to see, to their friends and family, not to guarantee a steady percentage of referral traffic to news websites. And in fact, the machine learning that we're talking about, the newsfeed ranking process, that is constantly changing and adapting. One of the bigger changes that we made to newsfeed a year ago was to actually increase the amount of content from people's friends and family in newsfeed and decrease the amount of news and other public content. And you might have heard about that change. Yes, it is mentioned in the report because it was actually a subject of grievance on the part of some of the news organisations who said they didn't get enough notice of that change and couldn't plan for the way in which it was going to affect traffic to their sites. I think Seven West Media said that traffic fell 40% because of that algorithmic change. Were the news organisations given notice and if so, how much? You know, that underscores an important point. We do give notice of the changes that we make, but there is a fundamental tension here between the feedback that we receive from users who were telling us that they come to Facebook to connect with their friends and family and that they were dissatisfied with the increasing amount of public content that they were seeing in their news feeds, including news, and the desires and interests of publishers and partners on other sides of the platform. And sometimes these interests are in tension. And I think what this change shows is that in every instance, we are going to be managing towards what is in the best interest of people, what people are telling us that they want. And sometimes publishers are unhappy with that. But for a regulator to tell us that, no, that's not a choice we can make, we can't put the interests of our users above interests of publishers, that's something that would fundamentally change kind of the nature of the products and services that we offer. Another regulatory proposal relates to media regulation and it proposes that there be a separate independent review of the media regulatory framework in Australia, largely because it is troubled that traditional media organisations are subject to a plethora of regulation, whereas the digital platforms are subject to virtually none. And one of the possible outcomes it foreshadows is the creation of a unified platform neutral framework for regulating media, including Google and Facebook. So underpinning this seems to be the view of the ACCC that you're actually in the news business. You're not just a mere conduit for or distributor of news. 
What do you think about that? Well, there are important differences between news publishers and Facebook. To take just one example, so a news publisher like News Corp will have complete control over what appears in their newspapers or what goes up on their websites. And that's not true for us. I mean, fundamentally, Facebook is a platform for people to share user-generated content. So that's just one example of a difference that needs to be taken into account as we're thinking about the different regulatory frameworks and models here. That said, the ACCC's recommendation on this front to undertake a review of the media regulatory frameworks and understand if they're meeting modern needs that makes sense to us. We certainly are in favor of smart regulation, regulation that reflects modern times, and we're glad to participate in those future consultations. Sam, speaking of smart regulation, I just want to play back to you something from the testimony by Mark Zuckerberg when he was being grilled on Capitol Hill last year. My position is not that there should be no regulation. Okay. I think the internet is increasingly you embrace important. regulation. I think the real question as the internet becomes more important in people's lives, is what is the right regulation, not whether there should but, but be or not. you as a company welcome regulation? I think if it's the right regulation, then yeah. There's a lot of reference to right regulation there. Would you classify the types of regulation being proposed by the ACCC as the right regulation, Sam? As Mark said, we sit at the table ready to partner with regulators on initiatives that would protect consumers, protect businesses' incentives to grow and to innovate. And it's important that we get this regulation right because with regard to Facebook, there are millions of Australians that get a free service to stay connected to the people that they care about and to use to express themselves. And with respect to Australian small businesses, they get access to Facebook tools to grow and create jobs in Australia. and. Our concern with the ACCC's recommendations is that they are very focused on protecting publishers, but there is little to no analysis in the preliminary report of the impact of these recommendations on Australian consumers or small businesses. To say the least... There are disagreements on just what is the right regulation when it comes to the internet and the tech giants that some say dominate so much of how it's experienced and used. Submissions in response to the ACCC's preliminary report were due on 15 February and the final report expected in June. So watch this space. Next on Competition Law, to round out our media-related mini-series, we have an episode on fake news and what, if anything, it's got to do with competition. The episode features a host of different voices and I can't wait to share it with you. Until then, you can find links to the ACCC's preliminary report and Facebook submissions to the inquiry in the show notes and other resources and links always at competitionlawlore.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please just take a moment to leave us a rating and review as that will help others find and hopefully enjoy it too. Competition Law was produced by writtenandrecorded.com. I'm Karan Beaton-Wells. <laughs>